With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Mora Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? Uh, it's so good to be back, Tim. It's so good to be here in front of the microphone talking about, you know, the things that are really, uh, the things that are we're really passionate about, and uh, and and I miss that. So it's good to be back. Well, I appreciate you being here for this intro, Lance. But uh, it's sad to say that you are not a part of this uh, episode. But don't fret; it is the last one that you weren't a part of. Yeah, talk about a weird feeling. Introing an episode that I was not a part of, I haven't heard, and I'm sure it was great. I'm sure it was a, a fantastic interview. Uh, but again, I cannot wait to be back on the uh, proverbial horse riding it to the burning stable soon. I wouldn't listen to it, though. A lot of shade thrown your way by uh, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott of the L.A. Not-So-Confidential podcast. I'm sure they're not even real doctors. No, that's incorrect. They are, and they're wonderful people, and they are smart as heck, and 
they like me, Lance, and I don't. They don't know you, so they probably don't like you. Well, you know what? I'm going to have the opportunity to get to know them a little better, Tim, and perhaps maybe the uh, the old table will turn once they have jumped aboard the Crawl Space Network. Well, that's right. They have. They've jumped aboard the Crawl Space Media train, the network, and so this their podcast, LA Not So Confidential, is now a part of the Crawl Space Media Network. So check it out. There are links in the show notes. We love this show. We think these people are really smart. And just, I mean, just listen to this episode. I think you'll agree. Yeah, I think it's uh, a great fit for the Crawl Space Network, along with the other shows that we have involved. The Incel Show, we have True Crime Twins, we have Criminal Perspective, and now we have the LA Not So Confidential Show. It's incredible. And we got a couple more coming up in the old hopper as well. We sure do. Yeah, don't forget Crawl Space and Empty Frames. But we do have Free John Juca that's coming soon. And uh, just more, just a lot more. It's a uh, it's a wonderful time to be a part of the Crawl Space Network. So thank you to uh, to Shiloh and Scott, and welcome aboard. And they're going to join us in Wildwood, New Jersey, at the American Crime Festival, Lance, November 9th and tenth, twenty nineteen. We're going to have them do a panel with Sarah Turney, Lance. Yeah, that's going to be a great panel. We have a lot of great panels that are lining up for this. We have a lot of good presenters that are lining up for this, not to mention uh, Aphrodite Jones versus Larry Pollard. They're going to be debating the owl theory. In it's going to get heated. It's going to get heated. If you're not familiar with the owl theory, that is from the Netflix show The Staircase, and it's the Michael Peterson case. So Larry Pollard basically invented the owl theory, and Aphrodite Jones uh, is a— Hates it and hates owls. <laughs> hates owls so much now but uh they're on the docket we have the vip night that's going to be on the friday before on november 8th and you can go to americancrimefest.com and check out the schedule the podcasters the location and you can get 50 bucks off tim hey you get 50 dollars off each ticket you use the discount code crime and that's all capital letters crime for 50 bucks off each ticket Yes, and we have partnered with Jim and Nicole of Unsolved Magazine and Private Investigator Magazine, PI Magazine, uh, to put on this American Crime Festival. And so they did an episode recently with us on Crawl Space, so check that episode out if you want to get to know them a little bit better. And Lance, we've got our true crime-obsessed show happening in Brooklyn October 5th, 2019 at the Bell House with... Patrick and Jillian of True Crime Obsessed. It's me, you, Maggie Freeling, and th- and those two clowns. And they're going to be making fun of us. It's going to get uh, going to get crazy. Yeah, if you've ever seen True Crime Obsessed live show, you know how crazy it can be. We're going to be on stage with them, and they're going they're going to roast us. They're going to show a little bit of the Oxygen Networks series, The Disappearance of Maura Murray, and then they're going to show a little bit of our independent documentary. Uh, segments from the four-part series that we released on Amazon Prime and then they're going to comment and I fully anticipate to be uh to be roasted. I don't know if you're nervous about it, but I am starting to get a little anxiety. Yeah, well that's why I'm already going on the offensive calling them clowns. So. <laughs> You've already started the <laughs> offense. I love it. I love it. At least they'll come at you first so I'll be able to prepare myself for what might be coming my way. <laughs> okay, so uh, we hope to see you at those shows, everybody. Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. And check us out on Stitcher Premium. Our full archive is on Stitcher Premium, including creators' commentaries. Check that out at stitcherpremium.com. Last words for me right now is I can't wait to hear this episode, this interview. Let's go. 
Okay, thanks for listening, everybody, and check out L.A. Not-So-Confidential. We are being joined by Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott of the podcast L.A. Not-So-Confidential. How are you both doing tonight? We're doing well, We're doing pretty good, yeah. How are you? I'm doing well too. It's uh, it's it's later than usual for me to record. So, but I'm hanging in there. I'm not uh, I'm not too drunk yet. <laughs> We've done yeah. that a couple of times though, because usually Thursday is our recording day, and if we're here at work, we don't do it because we both have to drive distances to get to our respective homes. But if it's a recording night at my house, it's a good two or three glasses of wine. <laughs> Yeah. Throughout the process. You got to loosen up a little bit, you know? Yeah. So it was great to meet you both in Chicago at the True Crime Podcast Festival back about a month ago now. It's crazy that it's been that long because it was such a fun experience and a whirlwind. Um, But yeah, it it was really nice to connect in person. Yeah. You know, it felt like camp. I mean, it felt (laughs) like, remember when you went to camp and you were like gone to camp for maybe four days and it felt like the most intense year i mean i we were saying this on another in another crossover that we did uh with some colleagues of ours that for one thing we were expecting really we didn't know what to expect we thought it could have been fire festival you know it could have just been (laughs) completely fallen apart and they pulled it together they really pulled it together and it was successful and yeah, it was cool. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun, and it is a long day. You know, like I was exhausted by the end of it. Yeah, it's just a lot of yeah, talking to if people. You eat, if you eat food, I'm sure because we didn't even eat. We until for, yeah, late we for, yeah, we didn't eat until you know more than halfway through the day, and we paid for it. Yeah, it's easy to forget to uh, to eat, and and time just kind of flies by, and you're like, oh my god, it's this time already. But uh, I had the best pizza in Chicago when I was there. Where'd you go? California Pizza Kitchen. Oh, you <laughs> loser. <laughs> uh, when you come to L.A., we'll take you to a really good deep dish pizza place. It's better than Chicago. Uh, okay. well, I don't agree. I won't say that. I was I lived in Chicago for three years, so I'm partial to Carmen's and Giordano's. Yeah. Yes. I like Rocco's in LA. I, I actually, I spent yeah. about a decade in LA. Rocco's was one of my favorite places for pizza. Yeah. So what'd you get at CPK? Cause I was also a waiter there a gazillion years ago. <laughs> I think I might've gotten the Jamaican jerk, uh, okay. pizza. That, that used to be what I got. I, I don't really remember what I got this time. might've been something a little different. You <laughs> <laughs> shook it up. <laughs> shook it up a bit. So let's talk about your show a bit. And uh, you guys both have really impressive backgrounds. In fact, uh, you you sent your, your resumes to me, and I, I asked you if, if that was just uh, to intimidate me. Um, oh, of course. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're both doctors. Uh, Dr. Scott is a uh, doctor of uh, forensic psychology, and Dr. Shiloh is a law enforcement psychologist. So uh, dealing with some real professionals here, and uh, and Dr. Shiloh told me to stop calling her doctor uh, over text, <laughs> and uh, I realized that I don't want to. Um, but it's more it's more about me, I think, than you. Like uh, it's more about like I'm really impressed with myself that uh, that I'm texting <laughs> with doctors. 
Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I got that. Totally makes sense. Yeah. So back <laughs> off. Okay. <laughs> Carry on. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Was a little, little, a little, little unbridled aggression there. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so thank you very much for coming on. A couple of uh, experts. Now, uh, one thing I, I wanted to, or a few things I want to mention before we get into more Murray stuff. Um, Dr. Scott, I heard you on the Ron Burgundy podcast. Yeah. How was that? It was so cool. It kind of appeared out of nowhere. Uh, Shiloh and I had done our first year, maybe. I think we'd done our first like 12 episodes or something. And I have a wonderful colleague out here who has a group practice. She's a forensic psychologist and she does like high end um, evaluations for people that are going to trial, like rich people that get in trouble and need to be psychiatric evaluated. And she's amazing. And um, she called me at the last minute and said, hey, I got a call from this podcast and I'm out of town. Can I send them your way? I had no idea what it was going to be. And they sent me an email and they explained what it was. And (laughs) I was really up front. It was like I I called the producer, who's a lovely woman. And I said, look, I'm I'm all on board with this. I'd love to. But if you expect me to to be straight and hold it together, I'm not going to be able to do it because I'm a huge fan of, of Will Ferrell and. You know, I don't know. Is it going to be in Ron Burgundy drag? What? And they were like, "No, it's totally relaxed. If you crack up, it's we we work it into the show. It's totally fine." Right. So I we we had a blast. It was a lot of fun. I was in the engineering room watching this whole thing go down, and it, the fact that it was the debut episode for his show, right. and it was about true crime, was just. It was the perfect mix of everything. We right. were dying the entire time. Yeah. yeah. Now, were you just really jealous, uh, Dr. Shiloh? No. Well, <laughs> it's funny because they, at first, you know, they were going to have this other woman do it. And so they said, well, it's not really scripted, but it's sort of loosely written for just one psychologist. So we can't have both of you. And I told Scott, I was like, oh, my God, please do it, because I don't think I can do this. <laughs> I'll be behind the scenes. If I get to meet him, I'll be happy. And that that's that's how it happened. Cool. So you met uh, Will behind the scenes? Yeah. Yeah. He was just wonderful. Yeah. He was just wonderful. And uh, you mentioned on your podcast that he was just like, uh, like him and Carolina, they kind of just crack up after they say something. And, uh, but it's like off mic. Is that uh, pretty accurate? Oh, I, I really wish I, we, yeah, I wish you could see it because they've got their mic set up right in front of them and they're doing their shtick and then they crack each other up and they quickly whip away and they're, they're, they're biting their hand. They're giggling so hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so then I had to, I had to witness that and try not to crack up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Will, I I actually shot an interview with him um, about 10 years ago, and it was one of the funniest things uh, that that I ever shot um, professionally uh, with with camera. One of the things I used to do when I was out there and uh, it was like I was at a premiere and uh, the interviewer that I was working with asked him. She's like, what are you doing here? And he was like, he's like, well, I was just across the street at the coffee bean and I saw the lights and, uh, you know, I'm just kind of like a moth to the lights. And I just, I just came over. And he's just like the loveliest he's person. He's just a lovely guy. Yeah. yeah. There was some award show several years ago where he showed up to present an award and he was wearing like dirty stained sweatpants and a stretched out t-shirt and he had all of his kids in tow and it looked like they had just come from the playground and the kids are wandering around on stage. And he's like, I'm so sorry. This is, I totally forgot we were supposed to do this. So I just, 
you know, I got the call last minute. I mean, just to improv this whole thing with these toddlers walking around Brilliant. on stage. It was so great. Yeah, that's amazing. Cool. So, um, all right. Well, t- tell us about your show a little bit. What What is it that you guys focus on? Well, y- you mentioned that we're both in the field of forensic psychology, and Scott and I met when we were doing our internship 10 years ago this year. Um, and we were working at a site where we were working with sex offenders who were getting out of prison and coming back into the community. And we were doing evaluations and treatment with them. And then Scott and I kind of went off in our own directions after that, working in the field after we graduated. And, and but also like we really formed a fast friendship. I mean, almost really from day one. Right. I like, mean, it's not like we're, we didn't talk to each other. We're spending holidays together, and we're and nice. we're huge Dis- we're huge Disney nerds. So you know, both of our our families, you know, we were, and another few friends of ours. Like we were just we spend a lot of quality time together, and it was probably what oh, so it was like two years ago. We went mm-hmm. to get coffee because mm-hmm. we now work. You know, we work for essentially the it, same agency. It's, yeah, in but different in, diff- ways, in different but... ways and in different locations. And we were meeting for coffee, and Shiloh said. I have an idea that we should do a podcast. And I was like, no, we can't. <laughs> there's so many. What would we do? And then when she came up with the idea, she said, look, there's there's no forensic psychology podcasts out there. And immediately I went, well, crap, if there's none, of course we should do it. Yeah. yeah. It seemed like there was a void. You know, there was, there's tons of people reading about true crime from printed pages of Wikipedia and people that are talented and hilarious and fun to listen to. But I felt like the depth of the real psychological concepts that go along with these crimes and these victims was really missing. Um, And so that just felt like a natural void to fill. And we're both, I mean, we're both educators as well. We're both active clinicians. We have private practices. We work for these agencies. We consult I mean, I consult for the entertainment industry. I consult with a with a law enforcement threat management unit. Unit. Are you tr- are you trying to intimidate me again? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not that. I'm seriously. I'm not, dude. I I turn around every day. I mean, there are times I look at Shiloh and I went, I'll go. How did we get here? Like this I, is amazing. Like we met ten years ago. We went opposite directions, really, in our the first few years of our career, and now we're working for the same agency, three blocks apart from each other. Mm-hmm. It's it's, it's very strange. But we, cool. um, what we wanted to do was make it, like Shadow was saying, is like, and I, and I believe me, there, I can't even keep up with all the true crime podcasts that I actually really love. And if a, a comedian pulls something off Wikipedia and reads it, but has a, a, a new perspective on it, hey, I'm right there. I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. But what I think we have to offer is a little more depth and profundity. I mean, we're still snarky and we also want to bring out like the absurd gallows humor about some of these things. But we also make it educational where, you know, we're all in this together. Like, you know, there's a there's a flavor that we all have that is reminiscent of some of these criminals and crimes. And that's why everybody's attracted to it. So if we can help people understand how they get pulled towards this milieu. Yeah, and I think really listening to your show makes makes me smarter. It uh, it, it feels so casual too, and uh, I think that that's probably because you guys are so, are such good friends, and you know you're kind of relaxing, and this is your your uh, off time technically um, from your day jobs that you're kind of relaxing and talking about the field that you um, work in, but 
you know, just, just in a more casual way that people are kind of allowed in. And, uh, I think it's really compelling. So I, I want to say, I, I love the show. Thank you very much well, for doing it. And we're, we're usually in our underwear when we're recording. <laughs> oh, so that, that's why it has that relaxed vibe. I, I, I'm going to say that's really the head doing the heavy lifting. The last, the last session we were, cause it was a thousand degrees. Oh <laughs> it was so hot in the studio. We have a wonderful producer that helps us when we're doing like big conference crossover things. And, but he's over in an area of LA that like is really hot and there was no air conditioning. And, I'm surprised we even survived that day. It was yeah. a tough day. Um, now I want LA problems, right? LA, yeah, LA. yes. <laughs> Now, I wanted to ask about the incel community, because I know you did an episode on incels, and uh, Crawl Space Media has a new show called Incel that... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, it's kind of taken... It's taking... fantastic. I listened to the first episode already. Thanks. Yeah, Nama, uh, Nama Cates is doing a great job, and she approached us with this idea, you know, and we had never heard of the incel community at all um, before she came to us, like, last summer and said that she, you know, started kind of exper- experimenting a little bit with the community and learning a bit more about these, uh, this, this group of people that, that are online. Uh, incel, of course, is short for involuntary celibate, which uh, I, I honestly thought it was a joke at first. Mm-hmm. And, I, Tim, yeah. I was exactly there, too. I mean, I only, I mean, it's been 14 months since I got my first referral here in the agency I work for it, involving an incel. Oh, and I mean, I, and I felt completely ignorant. I was like, wait, what is this? And I had to go educate myself as best I could. And there was very little material at the time. And, you know, it, it, and I, I'm completely there with you. Like at first I was like, what the fuck are you talking mm-hmm. about? Like, this is not, can't be a real thing. And now to be honest, I'm actually, very concerned about it and yeah. we should all be concerned about it we should all be concerned about the the level of of uh threat that members of this community can pose mm-hmm. i mean i mean we're seeing it we're seeing it mm-hmm. in the in the shootings we're seeing it in the violence that's occurring in the community now yeah i guess um w- at least one mass shooting per year since 2015 has been done by someone who identifies as incel. Right. Right. So that's pretty scary. Yeah, I think, I, I think her, her podcast would be very interesting to look at to, to kind of peel the curtain back a little bit because there is such this visceral, visceral reaction to that community and to really talk to some of these individuals and do a deep dive and see, you know, how empathetic can we be to them? Because that's how a lot of these groups start is, okay, let's label them. Let's say how outrageous and disgusting and horrible they are. But then as we learn more, we realize why they're like that or how that happened and that they're people. And that I I know Scott and I have dealt with that with different populations that we've treated so I think this is probably going to follow that formula. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of Nama's goals is trying to make the community feel heard um, because she, I think it is her idea that they would potentially uh, not go towards any violent gestures if they felt more heard. But then that's also kind of a double-edged sword because you're like, well, you're giving them a platform to spout their ideology. And that's obviously not the goal. I think the goal is understanding the community a little right. bit more, but it's certainly controversial. 
Well, I mean, along with what you're saying, the the area that gets concerning for me is I love the idea that she is trying to open a line of communication. And that's been that's reflected in a recent Vice article. Yeah, that was really, really great, where what you saw in that particular example was was an individual who allowed himself through that particular online community as an outlet to be his sole expression of emotion. And then he connected, he, you know, this is, he was an individual that's not, doesn't seem to be characterologically impaired particularly, but he connected with a support system online. So the idea of leaving them, even though he has the potential to go to something better, which is actual healthy interpersonal relationships you can see the pull that he feels it's like, well, I don't want to leave them. It's like it's like soldiers leaving people, you know, leaving their comrades in the trenches. He doesn't want to do that. Yeah. Now, that being said, the other side of it, which is really frightening and dangerous, is that there are members of that community that are solely there to instigate and foment hate. And that are extremists. They're extremists. Yeah. And they are there to stir it up. And some of them, and I will, I mean, I feel very, very strongly that some of them don't even adhere to that particular ideology, but they are there to stir things up. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, and it's probably safe to say that there are some people in that community now that really just need a little push to get somewhere violent. Um, I know there's a lot more stats that are coming out lately. There was a really interesting study done by uh, The Violence Project. I don't know if you guys saw that, but I was looking at that recently after these uh, latest two mass shootings uh, in Dayton and in El Paso. But it's um, it's definitely a really a real problem in this country. And uh, it's really scary when you think that small groups of people online who have never met in person could sort of radicalize each other. Right. Um, and Nama's kind of finding that almost the opposite though. She's kind of finding that they help support each other in certain ways and in, in ways to sort of graduate their inceldom. Um, now it's just, just the beginning, I guess. But she's also said that, um, that, about 80% of the community has claimed to be mentally ill in some way. Right. Yeah, these these aren't new issues or even problems necessarily. Um, in our follow-up episode to our incel episode, we actually talked to Special Agent James Fitzgerald about whether or not the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, was sort of an incel pre- you know, internet. And of course he didn't use technology, but the ways in which he reacted to the rejection of women and the violent tendencies that were underlying there, it, this, this is just a new era in which this can all fester. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm glad to hear that there is, you know, if there is some support being given to each other without sort of what Scott was describing of stirring the pot and mm -hmm. trying to radicalize each other. But, but making that available, like, you know, it, that's that's sort of the basic foundational core of of one to one therapy is you're going to a safe space to be heard. So if she through this project can create the idea for these these men, primarily men, there are a few women, but these men that like that there is a place for them to go and be honest rather than falling into. I mean, it's it's almost uh, what was the movie that we 
how to choke about like the dream within the dream inception. With the inception. There's this in, sort of inceptional process that's going on. Okay, I just made that word up. Um, <laughs> I like inception it. process going on where there it's self propagating and it's self feeding in and almost that they're going for the the self immolation and the self hate looks for higher levels of stimulation. So it's not only that you don't have social skills and you can't get laid. It's that your cheekbones and your your brow bone is not prominent enough, that your wrists are too small, yeah. that, you know, that, that they then focus in on these things. And what is that that's doing is is it's put pouring kerosene on possibly latent characterological issues. And I'm not saying that we, we aren't we're all susceptible to those. But if you're sitting in a dark room day after day after day and looking at um, everyone criticizing their looks and criticizing the looks of others and holding up these sort of bizarre ideals of what some celebrities represent to them, you're, you're taking one characterological issue and you're pushing it to evolve into something else. So we've started out with people with basically started out with social anxiety and poor interpersonal skills, and now they're going to develop eating disorders and now they're going to develop, develop body dysmorphia. Um, so the idea that she is going to open up the door and I hope, I hope it's safe for her because, you know, I don't, you know, I, I think that there are people in the community that are violent. So I think we all need to be aware of that. They'll dox, um, they'll dox people. They will have people shut out of uh, communication threads, just like a lot of, you know, the Reddit and 4chan and 8chan communities. You have to be careful. Yeah, certainly. Um, all right, I just want to pivot real quick um, to uh, sort of a mutual friend of ours, uh, Lee Purchase of the podcast Slim Turkey. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Yes, now this fellow uh, was on was on Crawl Space, and I and we had a we played a segment I think of that interview on Missing Maura Murray uh, because the case that he covers on his podcast Slim Turkey. Uh, had to do had some connection to New Hampshire, and uh, and it is the the unsolved murder of Richard Adderson, and uh, and so Lee Purchase is, is a pseudonym, and he was a, he's a police officer, but um and now you Dr. Shiloh were on his show, discussing that case, right? So I did hear his interview with you guys um, through Crawl Space, and then. Of course, I just was intrigued right away, especially with the the hook that he was also a police officer um, investigating this. And so I completely binged what he had so far at that point and wrote him an email right away and said, I think this is so interesting and really neat. And I'm a former police officer, you know, just sort of making a connection there. And here's what I do now. And I work with law enforcement. So anything I can do to help in any way, just let me know. And so we, we created this great sort of relationship um, to where he said, yeah, come on. And I want you to talk about a couple things. And what I, what I really tapped into was the sort of psychology of keeping secrets. Mm -hmm. So knowing that there is a, a suspect out there and um, that committed this crime all these years ago and, sort of what that means to harbor that secret and guilt 
and uh, what that can do to someone and how that sort of evolves over time. And I thought it was a really nice conversation because we got into, you know, a lot of this familial DNA and genetic um, DNA that's capturing people all these years later. And it's just it's a really interesting time in criminal justice because of the technological advances. I feel like in 20 years, 25 years, maybe even less, we're going to look back at the way police cases and court cases have gone and look at it almost as if the way we look at medieval medicine. Yeah. I just think that we're moving that fast with technology. And, and I think what we're also going to have to, I think at some point in our culture here in the West is we're going to have to have a huge reckoning um, regarding false imprisonment and, and court cases that have gone awry, you know, where justice was not done. Uh, and we're going to have to deal with that. We're going to have to deal with, you know, a couple of hundred years of, of um, people being, uh, incarcerated wrongly yeah things have really accelerated quickly um since the mid 90s with dna and then now with uh, familial dna and the genealogy sites opening uh, additional doors it's really crazy uh, really been a great time to uh to follow this stuff and root for the good guys definitely definitely All right, so uh, let's get into Maura Murray and her mysterious disappearance. Now, um, before I ask any questions, do you have any thoughts that you'd like to mention off, uh, based on what you know of the case? I think, I, <laughs> so the way that I, I have not followed this case for 15 years, like a lot of people have, um, I, I feel like I sort of came to it late in the game and had to binge a ton of your episodes once I finally came across them. And it, it's one of those cases that on the surface, it's like, eh, okay, what's so special about this? You know, this girl goes missing. She crashed. Okay. So, and then another layer is peeled off. Right. And it, it, as you've talked about lots of times, it's just like, there's these, incredible directions that you can go down and the what ifs are infinite, um, which I think is what is so intriguing about the case to people. Um, yes. So I, I, I listened to the the podcast and I, I, I haven't done like my own digging online or, you know, investigation or anything like that. And then when the show on oxygen came out, um, I think that's when I saw that, Lance also had a Twin Peaks tattoo and I'm like, okay, I gotta, re I gotta reach out on Twitter to these guys because they're my kind of people. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and so like that just, you know, very peripherally started a little bit back and forth. Um, but it's, I don't know it, it, what intrigues me about the case is wanting to know what intrigues all of these people about the case. Yeah. So that's just kind of where I'm coming from when I look at the Maura Murray case. And mine is along the same lines as the level of exposure. Mine has been a combination of listening to your episodes, watching 
the various documentaries, watching some things on YouTube, but nowhere nearly, like Charlotte was saying, nowhere nearly as exhaustive as, you know, many of your researchers and, and certainly the people that are discussing online. But, you know, my perspective as a, as a clinician and also someone who, you know, I, I work in the intersection between uh, diagnosis and legality in a way, and I'm, I'm around, you know, part of my job is evaluating people in the community, not for criminal reasons, but I worked in prisons for a long time. I worked at the, the, in the jail system for a long time. And even as a psychologist, you know, you're supposed to be an astute observer of human behavior, but I feel like mine, my particular experience has taken me to a, a different level. I'm not saying that I'm an expert. There are some people like I, I work with a colleague, I swear to God, she's a human lie detector. I mean, she is just a genius in that area. But when it comes to your material, I, I, I mean, we, we talk about all the, the multitudes of theories, but underpinning it all is that this was a very distressed young woman who had made some very poor decisions in her life. And the consequences were very heavy and then that leads into a that leads into a whole tree, you know, branching tree, practically a forest of possibilities in that area. And then on the other side, and listening to the interviews with family, everything to me is inconsistent. Now, incons that it can be inconsistent because of time. You know, perhaps when all this started, the family was like, "What is social media? What what is you know? We don't have anything to do with this." And they told a certain story at that time, which now their perspective on telling that story has changed. That's one possibility. Or it could be that people are hiding something. My idea is that, that, that there's a lot that is just not known. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're right. Um, there, There is a lot still unknown. We still don't know why she left UMass uh, Amherst. Exactly. And drove to New Hampshire. I can't believe that we don't know that. Um, at this point, after all the digging, I mean, my my conclusion is that she just didn't tell anybody. I mean, I, I don't have any better answer to that. But also, yeah. And here's OK, you know, Shiloh was talking about like this wasn't particularly a case that that jumped at her. And I think cases intrigue us for different reasons. I got hooked on this because she left college so abruptly. Not even because of the the West Point thing like that. West Point is incredibly hard and you know, you, people do weird things under stress. And, you know, I, 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 that's like only a part of the picture. But the idea that she just suddenly left, pulled the cash out of her account and then lied to people about it like that, that's really significant. People don't do that. You don't like that. There, there's a real ease in the deception that comes along with making a decision like that. Now, it might have been under duress. She might have been stressed out or overwhelmed, but mm -hmm. that's what hooked me in. And then on top of it to just literally disappear, you know, yeah. I that that's intriguing to me. Yeah. So let, I guess let's talk about uh, her distress um, before we get into the the accident. Um, but, uh, so you said that that was, that was really what hooked you. 
Um, we know that Mora left West Point. We know she had some legal issues. She had crashed her father's car a couple nights before she left Amherst to go to the White Mountains. And then she crashed that car. Like, uh, I know, you know, you, you don't know. You weren't there or with her. But, I mean, like, what is your best guess, I guess, at, at what she was dealing with at that point? Well, there, there's obviously a, a substance abuse issue going on. Now, I'm not saying substance dependence. Right. Um, but she's clearly drinking and driving um, frequently, especially in this, you know, what of days apart from each other to where she's crashing vehicles. Now I get it. It's icy. It's cold, all of that, but even more so to not make that poor decision. Um, now, okay. I guess we can take that and sort of work backwards and say, well, so why was she drinking and driving? Um, is she leaving a party? Is she drinking to cope with stress? College is an incredibly stressful time. Um, and she also has these sort of delinquency issues that are now piling up as well. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, when, when people go away to college, it's very disrupting. I mean, just to the most stabilizing factors that keep us all in a good place, like your eating habits, your sleeping habits, your exercise habits, you're away from your social support system. Um, a lot of that gets disrupted. And then if you put on top of that multiple stressors um it someone it it depends how someone's going to cope with that and drinking might be the way she was doing it and and uh, adding to that as a foundational issue the idea that she is not necessarily a person from what we know of her and her family that functions in sort of an average way this is somebody who is a competitive star athlete for a while right so there's a dynamic there in the family. I mean, gets into West Point. It, yeah, it gets into West Point, which is an incredible uh, achievement. But you know, when you think about these issues of, or even prior to her drinking, what what were there? Was it there was was there a embezzlement? There wasn't embezzlement. It was credit fraud. card fraud, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It was like improper mis improper use of of a credit card number or something like that. And was that a family member? No, it was, um, I think it was, it was numbers. It was like credit card numbers. I, I'm not sure. I don't think anyone knows where she got the, the numbers or the credit card, um, but it was an unknown person. And there was kind of like a sting operation done by the UMass PD, because I think either she had used that, those numbers before, or other people had, and she had gotten it and just kind of felt the brunt of, uh, people passing that around. Okay. Yeah. So here, here, so we don't know if she actually engaged in purchases. We know she that did. she did. Okay. Yeah. She ordered. So, well, here, here's the thing. Okay. Here, yeah. She ordered some thing. food. I have a, I have a, a nephew who is at West Point and the hurdles that you have to go over to get into West Point are commensurate with, and Shiloh could even speak to this, like uh, getting into the FBI. Right. I mean, it is, the, the when I worked for a, a different law insur- law enforcement agency, the amount of background checks and challenges and hoops I had to jump through as an adult to get this job were were unbelievable. So what I'm saying here is that here's somebody who definitely knows what is right and what is wrong. 
right? Yeah. So she has actively made the decision to engage in behaviors that while not maybe not dangerous to another person's life, they're illegal. And that is that reflects on your family upbringing. There's there's just no way around it. That comes from somewhere in the family dynamic where either it's tacitly approved of or what is approved of is you you get your needs met in any way you can or any way you need to. I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like spinning theories here, but I just don't think that any of the behaviors that she engaged in came out of a vacuum. They came from a particular crucible that has to do with that family milieu. Well, I also think, what if this is all self-sabotage? And I don't know where that's coming from, but she she steals something when she's at West Point and subsequently gets discharged from there and then uses these credit card numbers at her next school and then that's pending and then there's the drinking and driving episodes i don't know i i don't college age from 18 to 24 is when a lot of severe psychiatric disorders develop Absolutely. too Absolutely. so bipolar and schizophrenia this is when people have their their breaks is around these age this age so i'm not saying she was exhibiting those symptoms but there's also, you know, some other avenues that this could be as well. Yeah, no, I completely agree with the, And that's what's confounding about this is there's so many different ways you can go with trying to, you know, mm-hmm. post hoc attempt to uh, inv- evaluate somebody's motives. Yeah. Whether you're a web sleuth or you're a forensic psychologist, yeah, exactly. we're all doing it. Right. Now um, we just uh, just to add on to some of the some of the things that we're talking about here, um, we did hear from Curtis Murray, Mora's brother, that uh, we believe the time or he believes that the timing was that uh, her mom was diagnosed or their mom, I should say, was diagnosed um, with stage four terminal cancer uh, before this, uh, before she left. But it would have been right around that same time. It would have been a few months before or a few months after. Um, and obviously if it was, and that's kind of an important point, if it was before, um, that's, that's much more telling, I would say. Um, and I also want to say that like nothing we've seen from the family would indicate that they're, they're cool with their kids, um, you know, using credit card numbers or something like that. They, uh, they seem very, very, uh, straight laced, I would say coming from Fred and, and Julie and, and knowing Curtis, um, but also there had been some discussion of a possible eating disorder that Mora was, uh, suffering with. Um, so I guess, I guess, you know, that just kind of adds a lot, a lot more potential stressors, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it certainly, you know, adds depth and to the picture and additional questions. There's a lot of really big stressors there, you know, not only her mom, but if, her sister who was struggling with substances had relapsed recently and, and told her about that. I think that could be incredibly crushing. Um, and if there's problems in her romantic relationship with her boyfriend, you know, that's a lot to just all of a sudden come down on someone. Um, I'm not saying necessarily that they're going to run away and start a new life, but to want to get away for the weekend and check out for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and but I would also say in, you know, diving into the literature on this, you know, in preparation for the interview, 
it is fascinating how the level of stress that she's under is very reminiscent of people who are intentional missing. Really? You know, every, every case that, that I was able to come up with, and there are some really great ones outlined throughout the U S there's one out of Tennessee from several years ago. Uh, one, you know, several in England, several in Australia, and they're all with people who are just overwhelmed by life. And what they have in common is a financial stressor. Mm. And there are these people that are high functioning and they get to a point where, you know, and, and these are the ones that are that are found or get arrested for fraud or they come back in the picture. And every one of them says, I just got to this point where I hit a wall. You know, even one, the one in, in Tennessee where a guy faked his death, um, he was only forty thousand dollars in debt. Yeah. And I know for and now I'm not saying forty thousand dollars is not a lot of money. It's a lot of money. But but to, you know, leave your family and not tell your wife what you're doing, you know, all for forty thousand dollars. And he'd also been embezzling from his job. So there was a legal issue there, too. But that is certainly getting back to when it comes to the potential for even what we know about the stressors for Mora. I, I think it certainly is enough for at least I don't know what happened to her after she got to the point where the dog couldn't smell anymore, but I think she was trying to get away. Yeah. So you, who know, I don't know if it was a weekend or right. for a year, but you know, she was clearly was trying to get away from something. Yeah. And uh, so I guess that leads me here to a, a natural question. Then um, we've talked a little bit about stressors and, and possible things going on in her psychology versus uh, wanting to get away. I guess if you if you like, does she seem at that point in her life more suicidal or does she seem like she's trying to get away and and uh, live a different existence for a period of time? So. Suicide is absolutely a problem when it comes to college students. Um, it's the second leading cause of death for college age, which they sort of break down between 15 and 24 years old. Um, it, since the 1950s, the suicide rate for college students in that age group has tripled. And for women in the last, since 2017, it doubled. So it, it's, it's obviously a problem when we talk about the college um, population, but when we look at college educated women, they are not high risk for completed suicides. And I say completed suicides because even just in the general population, women attempt suicide at much higher rates than men, but men actually complete suicides more well, often than women. Because women generally generally use tend to use less lethal means correct as compared to men correct okay um so i it, there are some the risk factors for women around that age would be substance abuse um borderline personality disorder traits um maybe if they have perfectionistic tendencies uh, I don't know if I, I don't think I know enough about Maura to say that she does. But, you know, some of that seems to be there. She's very driven yeah. and had been very successful. Um, but when it when their grades are failing, that seems to be a big key for women um, in college who attempt suicide. Now, adding on to this, this is part of part of the education. Part of my job is educating uh, law enforcement officers 
on mental health issues. And one of the startling statistics that that has been presented to me is that a study was done, and this was in the 90s, where they were evaluating high school students around the world. And what they found is that in developed Western countries, the average high schooler experiences a level of stress that in the 1950s would have had an adult hospitalized in a sanitarium. Wow. So we have a saying in the South uh, where I grew up, which is, how do you boil a frog? And you boil a frog by turning up the heat really slow because it's an amphibian. It can't regulate its body heat. It can't jump out of the pot. So I think that that really is an apt metaphor for the stress that students are under certainly right now, but even as far back as 20 years ago as, you know, the this level, like Shiloh was saying, you know, shooting for perfection, which certainly if you're going to West Point, you have to do that. But the level of stress that even elementary school and junior high and high schoolers are under is incomparable to what I went through or what I went through was incomparable to what today's kids have to put up with. I did find a study that said that delinquency in college-age students and if they had current levels of depression were significant predictors of suicide-prone behaviors, so attempts or completions, which I think is interesting when you think of Maura's situation and uh, was she suffering from depression? I I don't know, Um, but there's that delinquency issue going on with some legal troubles. Yeah, and if Maura was... Uh, intending to commit suicide on her trip. I think the plans were sort of foiled um, because of this accident. I don't think that, I mean, that certainly wasn't her plan to spin out right there on a random road uh, right. in front of three houses. You know, I like, think no matter what her plan was, if it was to die by suicide, if it was to start a new life, if it was to just go away for the weekend, whatever her plan was, Yes, you're absolutely right. It was foiled by this. Yeah. And uh, I guess, so what What does that do to her victimology um, as far as being a, a likely victim in that moment? Um, we know that the windshield of her car was broken, uh, and we heard recently, I believe, that her seatbelt wasn't on and that we believe she got gas um, within maybe 15 miles of where her car was found. Um, and so we, I personally think it was her head that hit the windshield. I think Lance and definitely some other people disagree and say it was the airbag or, or say other things. But um, but what, especially if she hit her head, like what, where, where, what kind of risk would she be in at that moment in a random place with no cell phone service? You know, I know she had spent time in the White Mountains, but it's not like she knew the surrounding neighbors. Right. I think this opens up a lot of doors for some theories of um, maybe an opportunistic predator to come along. And for the reason you talked about, if she did have a head injury um, and she is now at a point where her plan has derailed and she's got to get back on her plan somehow because now she's taken it too far, right? She's taken out money. She hasn't told anyone where she is. Um, She's got all of her supplies. She's ready to go. 
I think that plus the fact that she's probably at least somewhat intoxicated because of the open containers in the car. We're looking at impulsivity, which is really high with with intoxication. We're looking at poor decision making because of that, as well as maybe some head damage. Um, I think this would be prime for her to get into the car with someone or for someone to take pity and quote unquote, like hide her or help her get away if she were to ask them just to sort of in her mind, maybe get back on track. I'll just hitch a ride with this person to get where I need to go or to get far enough away because I can't be caught now in another DUI after all of these. So the cops are going to be here. So, you know, my little mind map that I drew that I (laughs) texted you the other day, you know, these were some of the things that I was pondering that if she's dead, then it's either accidental suicide or homicide. And if it was accidental or if it was suicide, I think we would have a body by now. So I'm totally throwing those out the window. Um, So that leaves homicide. And then the two choices from there is that it was a known perpetrator or it was a stranger. Um, And if we go with stranger, then either it was just pure opportunity. That person was driving by at the right time or it was someone in that area, one of the neighbors that you know, took that opportunity Um, or someone was stalking and planned it, somebody that was a stranger to her. So those are sort of all the, the tentacles I threw out when I was contemplating this, but I think you're right. The, the victimology of her state of mind, I think before the accident and after the accident are really important. And even before she left, I think is really important to look at when we do a, a psychological autopsy on people who die or who disappear, looking at their behavior and what was going on in their life weeks leading up to that is very important. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's all of that should come into play, but I, I think it makes sort of the perfect recipe for her to be desperate to get back on track for her plan, yet not being in a good place to make those decisions. Yeah, and we know she locked her doors. Uh, we believe she took at least one bottle of alcohol um, and and likely put it in her backpack that was not al- among her belongings in the car. So that's right. kind of our um, our estimation of what she has with her, her phone, her purse. Um, she left some, some school books, I believe, there. Uh, in the car but again she locked it and took her keys so i don't know it like it seems it does seem like she was planning to retrieve the car at some point maybe yeah yeah those are the things that lead me away in this wonderful colorful mind map that shiloh did that of all the possibilities to me the one that does not light up as much is suicide Mm -hmm. i mean i see her you know i see her as a young woman distressed and self-medicating with too much alcohol but the idea you know someone who's in that state of active suicidal ideation where they're making a plan nothing she's not engaging in anything right now it seems that indicates that there was a plan to take her life she's taking some things with her, which is not taking other things. You know, if you're going to go kill yourself, why are you taking your school books? Mm -hmm. You know, there are things that just don't add up to that necessarily. I mean, it certainly 
she gives the impression of a little bit of like disorganization, like I'm overwhelmed. I can't really make a plan of where I'm, you know, how I'm going to go. But, you know, when people are ready to go, when it, as far as taking their own life, they're ready to go. You know, there, there are a lot of people that commit suicide accidentally because maybe they're engaging in, in suicidal gesturing behavior. And then they accidentally kill themselves because they're, you know, they were pursuing these characterological drives and needs from that gesture, gesture, but they didn't really mean to do it. With what we know about Mora, it doesn't look like anything like that was going on. She was self-medicating with alcohol, um, some poor judgment. And I, I agree with Shiloh. I just feel like she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like there was just really, it feels like an opportunist picked her up. I would like to think, I really would like to think that there was somebody there that she told her story to. And she said, I just want to change my life. And this person said, okay, I'm going to help you do it. Right. Yeah. And it, it's hard for me to sort of hone in on this conclusion too, because just statistically, I know it's so rare. You know, I know the odds, if we're going to play the odds, are that she was killed by somebody known to her. Um, and I don't know, just going with a gut feeling that doesn't feel right either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, we, we have no plans for any, anything we're talking about, right? We have no, there's no plan for suicide. There's no plan, documented plan to run away. And there's no plan with another person that we know of that might've hurt her. Right. And if there's another person involved, whether they were helping her run away or, um, you know, involved in her crime, uh, a crime and, in, in, um, you know, hurting her, they're really good at keeping a secret. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and there's no one else that is sort of dropped off the map either. Right. I mean, I don't know if there's a theory out there of someone else that's just can't be found either that she was close to. Um, I mean, I think it might depend who you ask, but uh, she had some friends in at UMass at that time who um, we've never spoken with, never had any contact with. They've uh, declined any any um, you know discussion with us, but I mean, we've. Mm -hmm. We don't really see that as necessarily suspicious. It's it's a little confusing, but I think I think some people just don't want to get involved in this um, in in this sort of uh, podcast and and the media side of it because the community will uh, occasionally drag people through the mud. Sure. Now uh, you mentioned possibly a random attack or encounter with uh, with someone who might have done more a harm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about behavioral changes. So if that was the outcome here, what kind of behavioral changes would that person have exhibited? And if anyone is listening out there right now, and I know it was 15 years ago, but if anyone out there is listening right now and has a question about their loved one or their friend or whatever, and they recall behavioral changes. I guess, I guess I'm curious what those would be. Well, um, I, I think so. This person is probably harboring some guilt in keeping this secret if they're not a full blown psychopath. Right. Mm. Um, so let's just first the sake of talking about what their behavioral changes might be. Let's let's look at that. What we find is that 
when people are keeping a secret that could be to this magnitude and degree is they tend to isolate a lot because they don't want to accidentally spill the beans. And so to not do that or to not slip up is to just stay away from people and not, not interact. Mm -hmm. So you're, they're lessening the risk of that happening. Um, so that, that's one behavioral change. It might be someone that was really withdrawn afterwards and for some time, and, and this is going to dissipate a little bit over time, but once they realize, okay, I can start interacting with people and I'm not slipping up and I'm not, you know, no one's suspecting me, then they feel a little bit more at ease. So there's, there's the isolation and withdrawal from other people, but they also have this extreme anxiety going on inside of them. So when you're harboring a secret like this, it's doing something to you on the inside. And so it's, they're going to feel tension and remorse and regret. Um, there's some studies, and I think I talked about this on Slim Turkey, where we're able to study people who go to war and kill people. And that's about the only time that we can really study a large sample of people who have committed homicide. Um, and that's what they, they, they feel like they want to confess and or apologize or somehow repair the damage that was done. But they know that the consequences to that are too high. So it's this sort of conflicting human issue going on inside of them where one side is saying, oh my gosh, I need to confess. I need to apologize. But then the other part of you know, the other person on their shoulder is saying, no, you can't do that because you'll go to prison and life will be awful. Hmm. Um, so it, I would say high anxiety um, individuals that are also withdrawing and isolating. Interesting. And, uh, well, you know, one thing that and we talked about DNA and even familial DNA and, and this time in 2019 where uh, some of these um, cold cases are kind of dropping like flies. One thing that that is kind of shocking to me when when I read these articles is the amount of one off killers seem way more common uh, than than I would have expected. You mean as opposed to a serial killer? Yeah. Or as opposed to, you know, say this this hypothetical killer of Mora. Um, you know, did, did this person act again? I, I mean, th there definitely are some other unsolved murders in the area that might fit that same opportunistic profile. Right. The sort of the people that, again, have, you know, like you said, a one off um, homicide issue, usually they're known to their victims because it's. Hmm. Yeah. It's it's a relationship issue. It's something that blew up and got out of hand um, or it was planned and intended as revenge or, you know, whatever their particular motive. But there's a reason there. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about people who don't have a relationship prior and they are picking and choosing victims at random, um, I just don't think we have enough data about that. Yeah. Interesting. So it's really hard to say. And I, you know, I have to wonder also about you, Tim. You bring up such a an interesting subject of the of the one off, you know. And then, okay, so we take a, a one off possible one off killer, and then subdivide it into: is it somebody she knew or or did not know? Was it accidental or intentional? And then, what's the 
the character logical basis of that individual? Is this somebody who is a little sociopathic to begin with? Because if they are, it's not going to be a big deal. They might, you know, sort of make the psychological adjustment of like, well, I didn't really mean to hurt her. It was an accident and I'm going to move on with my life. So that person's not going to tell on themselves in the way somebody that is carrying a load of guilt with them, right? And if, if it is something like that, then that makes it even harder to ever get any additional information, right? right? right. Because they just disappear. They fall between the cracks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now what Now what about someone, say, uh, someone sort of inserts themselves... Uh, claiming they they saw Mora at a later time than than uh, where she, where we know she went missing and was last seen, is that highly suspicious? Is that just a you know a sign of of someone who is looking for attention? Um, is, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. <laughs> there you go. There's there you your go. answer. Yeah, there's been several in this in this case, so I'm not asking specifically. Yeah. So, I mean, what I would, I mean, when you give an example like that, what I go back to immediately is one of my favorite documentaries of all time, Thin Blue Line. Yep. And in Thin Blue Line, as they're basically just letting the witnesses tell on themselves, there's the woman who, who is the primary witness uh, for the prosecution. And, you know, she basically was the whole reason this this individual was convicted. And she tells on herself, you know, she later in the interview reveals that there was basically no way for her to have corroborated what she said. She really didn't see the guy. And then she says, you know, I just I just love talking about stuff. You know, so you get this idea of this individual who wanted to insert themselves into this drama because they have a need and the need is, is just to be involved in something. And, you know, I use this example when we talk about some of our other cases, but there's, you know, there are people that based on their character logical construct, they create their reality as they walk through the day. And it's not that, I mean, it's not that they're lying per se. I mean, they're not telling the truth, but they believe what they say. Mm. So I think that there's a good subset of those individuals that are involved in any case, and particularly in this one, that will report, oh, yeah, I know I saw her. She fit this description da, 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 because they want to be part of that story. Yeah. And I'm going to go back even a little bit, just taking away someone's intent or personality. And eyewitness testimony is shit. So research after research over decades it is completely unreliable. Mm -hmm. So if, if we're talking about, you know, someone that said they saw someone that looked like her or, you know, it's, it's just, it, we have to take it with a grain of salt yeah. unless it's super specific. Now, if, you know, there's a witness possibly that said he saw a girl with a backpack running down the road, not that far. Okay. That's pretty specific. Yeah. Um, so then you, then you start to look into intention and is it suspicious? Yeah, there's, we know there's been cases where the guy that's talking all over the, the news ends up being the one that has the girl hide, you know, dead in his basement when he's just trying to appear helpful. And yeah. we talked about this when we covered the Madeline McCann disappearance Yeah, that sometimes, no, they're just trying to be helpful. Right. Um, or they're just trying to seek attention. Like Dr. Scott was saying. 
So what if that person, hypothetically, the person who saw Mora maybe running down the road with the backpack, what if that person changes their story on where they were the night of the disappearance? Is that, uh, re- you know, red alarms going off now? <laughs> we're, well, both, we're both sitting here shrugging. It's like, like <laughs> you know, it, it, there there's so many factors. Yes to no. I mean, that tells you something about that person, but it doesn't necessarily tell you anything definitive. It tells you about that they changed their story. Right. Yeah. That's what it tells you. It doesn't tell you about whether or not their original statement was true and true versus whether it actually happened. It could be true for them. Right. And an investigator just needs to find evidence to back up one of those two or multiple stories to then solidify that. So that that's the road that an investigator would go when looking at whether or not someone is suspicious because they changed their story. I think it should be looked into um, because what if that's it? What if that's the link? So all of those leads have to be followed, but it could be nothing just like 99% of the leads are going to be. Yeah. You know, I, I, this is okay. Bear with me for a second because this story I'm going to tell you is actually makes sense, but, or it's going to be part, it has veracity. Um, I went to a dermatologist like last year, it was a new doctor and she's doing like the skin check and she gets to a place on my shoulder and she goes, Oh, you had something removed here. And I was said, no, I didn't. She goes, well, there's a scar here. I'm like, Oh, maybe I, did I fall again? She goes, no, this is, this is an inpatient in, in office surgical procedure. You had something removed like a, a mole or something. And I absolutely said, no, I did not. I you mean, were I was, abducted by aliens. <laughs> yes. So then I get home and I was like telling my partner, like, this was so weird. I wonder why she said this. And my partner goes, yeah, dumbass, you had that, that mole taken off two years ago. Remember, you were all freaked out about it. <laughs> and as soon as he said that, I suddenly remember, oh, Right. So the the reason I offer that dumb little story about my my poor skin problems is that memory can be very plastic. And that's one of the problems as time continues to go on. And we go into year after year after year in this particular case is that people's memory is in, are, are incredibly flexible and plastic. And you have to be careful about polluting that memory stream. It's sort of like what happened to the kids in the McMartin preschool hearings. You, you were never going to get an accurate read on what actually happened to those kids because the, the evaluators that interviewed them at the beginning screwed it up so badly that they implanted false memories in those kids. Mm. And the same thing happens here. The farther we get away from it, you might have someone that has like it, like my experience. It was like as soon as my partner said that it was like this window opened up in my brain. And I went, right, that was the day that I did. Now that can happen. But the longer the period of time extends on, it's very unlikely that we're going to get any more information. That's really clear. Well, one thing I'm not going to forget is to listen to L.A. Not So Confidential on my favorite podcast app. Good. Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you uh, both doctors, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott, for joining us here today on Missing Maura Murray. I really appreciate uh, the time and uh, and your expertise. So thank you very much. It's our pleasure. 
Thank you so Thank much you. for asking. Anytime. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.